afternoon, everybody. Thank you for your patience. We had traffic problems this morning. I'm not sure whether the Pope was to blame or not. <laughs> my name is Mark Agrast. I'm a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. It's my pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the Center uh, to this discussion with the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter Eric Lichtblau and the distinguished author and legal scholar Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, our topic today is Eric's new book, Bush's Law, The Remaking of American Justice, which was published this month by uh, Pantheon Books. In December 2005, the New York Times published a story, a now famous story, that the Bush administration had gone to extraordinary lengths to suppress. Uh, written by Mr. Lichtblau and his colleague James Risen, the story revealed for the first time the existence of a secret program created by President Bush after 9-11, which authorized the National Security Agency to intercept the international communications of Americans without a court order. That story was one of many in which Lichtblau and Risen and other prominent national reporters have tracked the ways in which the executive branch has sought to maximize its power in the name of national security, from wiretapping to waterboarding, from detention to rendition, from the war in Iraq to national security letters here at home. In his new book, Mr. Lichtblau weaves together the many strands of this story, detailing the aggressive measures taken by the Bush administration to circumvent the legal and constitutional limitations on the power of the executive branch and their equally aggressive efforts to prevent these measures from coming to light. Running parallel to that story is Mr. Lichtblau's first-hand narrative about the role of the press in exposing official secrets to public view and the difficult decisions that reporters and edit editors are called upon to make in the course of carrying out that role. The book describes how Eric and his colleagues wrestled with the practical question of when it is in the public interest for a newspaper to reveal government secrets and when the government's national security claims are so compelling that they properly trump the public's need to know. The book also describes the personal costs incurred by reporters, their sources, and their associates when they fail to tow the administration line. We'll be hearing more about that in a few minutes. Eric has been a frequent guest here at the Center for American Progress. We're very honored to have him here with us today to discuss the new book. He'll be signing copies of it later. Uh, if you'd like to purchase one, uh, you are welcome to do so and encouraged to do so. Uh, Eric has worked in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times since 2002, covering the Justice Department and national security issues from 1999 to 2002. He was a Justice Department reporter for the LA Times. He's a regular contributor to All Things Considered on NPR, CNN, CNBC, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and C-SPAN's Washington Journal. A graduate of Cornell University, Eric was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting in 2006 for his stories on the NSA surveillance program. Joining us for this discussion is the distinguished author and legal scholar Jeffrey Rosen. Jeff is a professor of law at George Washington University and the legal affairs editor of the New Republic. His latest book is The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America, which is the companion book to the PBS series on the Supreme Court. We'll have to get him back here to talk about that as well. Uh, he also is the author of The Most Dem Democratic Branch, The Naked Crowd, and The Unwanted Gaze, the latter two essential reading on the right of privacy. Jeff is a summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College, was a Marshall Scholar at Oxford, and earned his law degree at Yale. 
His essays and commentaries have appeared in the New York Times Magazine and the Atlantic Monthly, on NPR and in the New Yorker, where he's been a staff writer. The Chicago Tribune named him one of the 10 best magazine journalists in America, and the Los Angeles Times called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. Jeff's review of Bush's Law, which I believe you have copies of, appeared in the New York Times on April 3rd. It's a great pleasure to have him with us today. So let me begin the discussion by asking Eric to give us his introduction to the book, how he came to write it, its major themes, and then I'm going to ask Jeff to uh, offer his initial observations. Sure. Th thanks for having me here, Mark. You've done such a, such a good job of summarizing the, the main themes that there's not much left for me to say, but, but, but I'll try. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, as you've already indicated, I, I tried to write a book that operated on, on two levels uh, and, and hopefully succeeded in some ways. Um, both in, in peeking behind the curtain and looking at a very um, very sort of personal level at the decision makers who were um, who were involved in this remarkable period in American history in the aftermath of 9/11, um, and also um, from a first-person perspective, uh, talking about what it's what it was like to be a reporter, a journalist on the front lines who um, uh, sort of stumbled into a, a couple of fairly remarkable stories uh, on my own and was involved in uh, some dramatic tensions with, uh, with the administration of whether or not we should, uh, we should publish those stories. Um, and this has been a remarkable period. I, I, I don't try and uh, make this into a book of, of heroes and villains. Um, I, I was careful not to make this an indictment of the Bush administration. And you know, I think that's easy. That, that's too easy to do to sort of paint this with a broad, broad brush and and uh, you know make them look like a make Dick Cheney look like uh, Darth Vader and, and power hungry, you know, maniacal of people. I, I was careful not to do that. Um, and uh, you know there were extraordinary pressures on people in the White House and the FBI and the CIA and the NSA uh, after 9/11. Um, we all wanted to stop the next 9/11. Uh, and what I tried to do was to show how those decisions were reached as, as best I could. There are a lot of things that we don't know even today, and we, we may not know for years and years. Um, and uh, I was glad that in another review, um, as, as much as I love Jeff's review, and especially the line, by the way, about all the presidents been in the age of terror. I, I love that line. I just want to make, <laughs> make, make clear. But, yeah, but th 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 thank you very much. But, but there was another review that, that said something uh, you know, e equally heartening to me, which was that, that this was an even-handed account. Um, and uh, you know, I did not get access for this book, perhaps not surprisingly, to most of the, the, the top officials in, in the Bush administration. When I went to the White House to see if there was a possibility of interviewing President Bush, um, late last year, one of his spokesmen uh, said to me that the request took her breath away. So I think that gives you an idea of my chances of being able to sit down with the president for, for, for an interview. So, so I was forced then to, to look at the, the historical record, at congressional testimony and interviews that they had been willing to give, at speeches and things like that. And I tried to weave that into the narrative and, and kind of put you put you in the room, um, not just for the NSA story, which is sort of my 15 minutes of fame, but hopefully at, at, at a series of other um, uh, equally remarkable uh, stories that, that took place after 9-11. The, the remaking of the FBI, for instance, um, and the 180-degree shift that it took from basically a law enforcement agency to now what is primarily an, primarily an intelligence agency. Uh, the, um, and Mark hit all the highlights, uh, the renditions, uh, interrogations, uh, bordering on torture. Uh, I talk about the, uh, the SWIFT program, which was um, 
uh, sort of our, our big follow-up to the NSA program that we ran in June 2006. I did that also with my partner, Jim Risen, uh, was a CIA-run program that, that um, allowed the CIA to gain access to uh, um, international banking records through this Belgian uh, consortium that very few people even know about called SWIFT. Uh, that was another story that the White House, um, uh, in a slightly less aggressive way, uh, asked us not to run. Um, and again, the newspaper decided uh, more quickly that time than the first time around not, uh, that, that it would run the story. Uh, that time, uh, Vice President Cheney uh, denounced the decision as, as disgraceful, and it led to a whole other round of debates about this clash between, um, clash between national security and the public's right to know. So it was sort of a surreal experience to find myself again in the middle of all that. Um, you know, mostly I try and tell stories. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm a reporter. And so I tried to sort of lay out um, interesting narratives through, um, through the perspective, um, or at least the, the experience of, of people like, um, uh, you know, Bassem Youssef, who was an FBI agent who was in the middle of these things, uh, through the perspective of people like Jim Ziegler, who was the INS commissioner. Um, at the time of 9-11 and, and was one of the first to, to really warn about uh, the dangers of going too far and, and warned on the day of 9-11 about uh, that we do have this thing called the Constitution. Um, and there, there are numerous characters throughout the, throughout the book that, um, uh, that hopefully provide sort of that narrative roadmap about, about where, we've, where we've been and, and where we still have to go. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the main themes, pr probably the dominant theme of the book, um, is the idea that, that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, um, the steps that the administration took um, may not have been all that different than any administration, any White House might have taken. Uh, an Al Gore administration were elected in 2000 or any other. Um, that there was really widespread recognition that uh, a lot of the measures that, that were taken in late 2001 and 2002 were overdue and necessary and essential, that the, that the country had been caught flat-footed, that it was not prepared to guard itself against this kind of terrorist attack, and it had to do something and do something fast. Um, and that extended to areas of surveillance and, and the roles of the CIA and the NSA, et cetera. Um, what, the theme that I explore is that um, even within senior members of the administration, there was a feeling that uh, that come 2002 or maybe early 2003, that permanent state of emergency was essentially declared. Um, and whereas the, the administration was given wide berth in those early months uh, and, and maybe the first year to essentially sort of operate in a, in a state of suspended, uh, suspended laws and some suspended due process in many ways, um, that there, there was an attempt by many officials to sort of say, how long are we going to let this continue? We've now escaped the second wave of attacks that everyone in Washington, everyone in a policy position thought was certain to come. Okay, we hadn't gotten hit again. Now what? Are we going to live in this permanent state of emergency forever? And the answer that they got from the White House was, was clearly yes. That, that um, you know, in the words of David Addington, we are going to push and push and push until someone pushes back. Um, and it, was, it wasn't until really 2004, 2005 um, that the courts in the Hamdan decision and, and others, uh, that the media through in a whole slew of stories that began coming out, coming out in 2004 and 2005, the Abu Ghraib um, uh, abuses in Iraq, Guantanamo, 
waterboarding, um, the NSA surveillance, that the media began really looking at how the war on terror was being, was being waged, um, and that a lot of these critical policies were being examined. Um, and uh, the, the, the notion that this was a permanent state of war with, with um, permanent, uh, unchecked, unfettered authority for the president was really challenged. Um, so that's one of the themes that hopefully runs, runs through the book. Um, and, and as we alluded to, the, the, the idea that the media kind of got its bearing a couple of years after 9-11 in, in the early, in those early months and years, I think the media was, myself included, you know, as gung-ho as everyone. Our job was basically just to find the next, the next threat, um, as, as improbable as it might be, whether it was an FBI um, bulletin about uh, crop dusters or scuba divers off the Pacific or hazmat trucks or uh, helicopter, tourist helicopters that might be carrying the next Al-Qaeda operative. You know, that was all grist for the front page. And that was where the focus was. And there was very little by the media in the way of real questioning as to, uh, okay, how much of this is real and how much of this is, is just sort of hype and, and um, uh, um, you know, fanciful connecting the dots. And, and that kind of tough questioning did not come by the media. And the media didn't really resume its role as a, as a, you know, a skeptical watchdog for a few years because there was the concern that um, you did that and you would be seen as somehow hurting the, the cause of the, the war on terror. And we found ourselves certainly in that situation with the NSA story. And I think the, the, the way that the Times handled that is sort of a microcosm of that. Um, uh, the, we can get into that in, in more depth if, if there are questions about that. But I, I devote the entire chapter of the book to the backstory of, of how the NSA story got in the paper. Um, you know, initially the editors were persuaded that there were um, uh, the legitimate, uh, that, that, that the national security reasons for not running the story outweighed the legal and public interest reasons for running it. Um, and that was a tough decision for the editors. Um, it wasn't one certainly that they made easily or quickly. Um, and it was only more than a year later uh, uh, after continued urging by the White House not to run the story, that the editors reversed themselves. Um, and I talk in the book that that, that happened, um, not coincidentally, after um, my partner, Jim Risen, was at that point considering um, exposing the, the, the program in his book, which was then running. And the editors um, agreed to revisit the whole, the whole issue and uh, um, were persuaded that the, the legal concerns that we had heard about early on, you know, is, is this legal? Does this comply with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act? Were there people in the administration who, in fact, were warning about this? That those concerns were, were in fact, great. Um, and that this was not the, um, the, the, the unified front that we had been uh, provided, that we had, we had been presented with by the administration, you know, which basically said from the beginning, this is a legal, lawful program. No one has ever questioned its legality. And if the New York Times were to run this, all we would be doing would be uh, outing and exposing a vital national security program and, and costing Americans lives. Um, and, and that argument, as I said, uh, held sway with the editors um, at the beginning of the process in 2004. It did not at the end of the process in 2005. Um, so that gives you an overview of um, you know, the book and, and uh, what went into it from um, from where I sat. Thank you. Sure. Great introduction. Thank you. Jeff, what are your thoughts about this book? 
Well, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Thank you. As, as uh, that review uh, indicated, it's so much more fun to write an enthusiastic review than a, uh, <laughs> a skeptical one, and uh, I couldn't put it down. You, you just uh, are, are reading right along, and one of the many benefits of it, Eric talked about the various levels on which it operates. He very modestly described himself as a journalist and a storyteller, but what a tremendous contribution to the post-9-11 debate it is to have someone chronicle in specific detail the actual costs of these programs. In his first chapter, Eric calls it the collateral damage. But I find, find that this really filled a crucial void in the debate. Uh, from As a law professor and privacy guy, I've been talking about these programs since 9-11, and people in the audience always ask, well, why does it matter? What's the danger? Can you point to one abuse? These are all hypothetical possibilities. Give us some uh, stories. And uh, it, it was hard to do that. They've been trickling out. Eric was responsible for much of the path-breaking reporting over the years. But to collect them in one place uh, and to give a sense of the human costs of uh, these excesses is a tremendous service. Uh, he tells lots of stories. He, he gave you some. Uh, I like the, uh, I, I didn't like, but I was, uh, I, I found especially memorable the stories of the people who were ca caught up in these dragnets, the Pakistani doctor who was arrested on a material witness warrant in secret. His computer is ransacked. He's taken to the county jail. No one knows that he's there. His son doesn't know what to do. Finally, he sends a press release to uh, the media. The national media ignores him. A local reporter thinks it might be interesting. Goes down, gets a copy of the arrest warrant that he's given uh, by the suspect's girlfriend. Finally, uh, goes to a judge. The judge is persuaded to release him, but first orders him not to discuss his wrongful incarceration, then threatens the reporter with contempt for having disclosed this arrest warrant. Uh, it, it's just so striking on so many levels, both to see the uh, bad performance of these local magistrates and also the terrible human costs. So it's, a, it's just a superb book in, in all of those ways, and he has lots and lots of other stories like that. Mark did ask me to, uh, uh, in the spirit of these things, raise some you know, firm but probing questions. I've already uh, done my uh, praise. So uh, here, they, here they are, and, and many questions occurred. Uh, these are the kind of things that I look forward to discussing uh, this afternoon. The one is, what was it that persuaded the Times initially to hold the peace for 14 years? What were the national security concerns? Obviously, as Eric says, the editors took it very seriously. But in his book, he's generally skeptical of the national security argument against publication. He says, we already knew that the administration was going to spy on al-Qaeda. They promised to do that, so it was no surprise to anyone that they were doing what they said they were doing. The only surprise is that they were doing it without court orders and warrants, despite President Bush's public claims to the contrary. But I'd imagine, knowing how seriously they took the decision, I, I don't imagine anything, but I, was it not the case that there were some substantive risks of national security that were presented to the editors that made them hold the story initially? Or was it merely a debate over legality? That is, once they, when they were wrongly persuaded that the thing was clearly legal, they were willing to err on the side of national security. But after it was clear, as Eric and other, as Eric's reporting showed, that there were strong divisions within the administration, and many people thought it wasn't legal, then they changed their mind. So I, I, I'm curious about what those arguments were, and if there were no specific substantive arguments presented to the Times editors that made them hold the story, can you speculate, Eric, about what it would, was? that led other administration officials like Jack Goldsmith, the former head of the Office of Legal Counsel, who led the internal revolt against the program's legality within the Justice Department, to say later that he agreed with President Bush 
that the exposure of the program had done great harm to the nation. Goldsmith is no fan of the uh, administration. He threatened to resign because he thought the program as constituted was illegal, but he nevertheless thought that the disclosure was bad for uh, the public interest, and uh, I, I wonder what he could be thinking about. So I'd, I'd love to hear Eric's thoughts along those lines. Should, do you want me to do too much? To, shall I just lay out a whole bunch of questions when we can start? That, um, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, I wondered also how good are editors and judges at weighing the risks of national security against the public benefit? For, for this panel, I had the pleasure of rereading the Pentagon Papers case. And there you see Justice Harry Blackman quoting the decision of the lower court judge, Judge Wilkie, and saying, like Judge Wilkie, I'm convinced that people are going to die because of the exposure of the Pentagon Papers. Now, in retrospect, that just looks alarmist. It, seems like, it seemed like a historical document. The claims of threats were overwrought, and these hysterical judges, at least in dissent, were overreacting. But are, uh, like judges, editors are also susceptible to fears. They're, they're patriots. In your experience, you actually saw the arguments weighed. How good are judges at making a sober and responsible consideration? Uh, speaking of the Pentagon Papers case, Eric reveals uh, remarkably that one of the final things that tipped the scales in favor of publication was the threat that Eric discovered that the Times had discussed the possibility of seeking, an, the administration had discussed the possibility of seeking an injunction against the Times to prevent publication. And this uh, specter of the Pentagon Papers revisited uh, convinced the Times to publish, and they actually put it on the website. Uh, the night before it was in the print edition so that the presses literally couldn't be stopped. A very dramatic moment, but it makes me wonder, what on earth was the Bush administration thinking? I mean, you just read the Pentagon Papers case. It's obvious that after that, uh, as well as a series of other discussions, the presumption against prior restraints is so overwhelming that it seems like just really bad lawyering for them to have imagined they could ever get away with it. Was this an example of their arrogance? Uh, how, how could they have seriously discussed uh, an injunction? Um, I wonder, more, it is a fair-minded book, Eric, and that's its great virtue. It's a reporter's book that's told from the perspective of the participants, and uh, it's not a polemic. But I wonder whether you um, understate the benefits of some of these surveillance programs, or if you don't, or do, you, do you think that they're exaggerated? Uh, I heard the other night a speech by uh, Michael Chertoff, the Homeland Security Secretary, try to give specific examples of their, the administration's successes in the war on terror. He cited the uh, prevention of the plot to blow up the airliners uh, coming from London to the US that was going to be based by those liquid containers that led to these ridiculous, well, not ridiculous, he said crucial security rules that prohibit us from taking the little uh, contact lens stuff that's bigger than four ounces on, on the airplane. And he said that was a result of good uh, intelligence and uh, it was a result of the NSA program. Uh, uh, Goldsmith has talked about the virtues of tracking terrorist financing through the SWIFT program, which you expressed some skepticism of. So although it's fair-minded, in most of these cases, you, you do talk a lot about the excesses, the bungled prosecutions, the innocent victims, but not so much about the benef benefits. What are those benefits? How would one measure them? And this is not an administration shy about trumpeting its uh, successes. Uh, you know, have you uh, found that they've offered stuff up that you've been unpersuaded by. Uh, maybe more broadly still, you talked about the transformation of the FBI from a investigation agency to one focused on preventing crime before it occurs, a complete shift in its institutional focus. 
uh, does this strategy make sense? You express skepticism. You quote a secret 2005 report by the CIA and FBI saying, we've not identified any true sleeper agents in the US. And you ask if Al-Qaeda did plan another attack, would the FBI even have the wherewithal to detect it, to sift through the endless uh, chaff uh, of information in search of wheat? Uh, so is the whole prevention strategy misguided, the difficulty of finding needles in haystacks, the impossibility of, being, uh, of sorting through information uh, overload? Uh, my instinct had always been to be skeptical of it and to be more focused on approaches like the Israelis who prefer human intelligence and old-fashioned uh, police work to broad data mining programs and attempts to predict crime before it occurs. But this, these prevention programs have many serious advocates uh, ranging from the judge uh, Richard Posner, again, to Goldsmith, to uh, the, the, the current attorney general. What uh, is it realistic to expect of these uh, programs and what might their benefits be in the hands of an administration less careless about asserting unilateral authority? I'm interested, of course, in a little more detail, if you can share it. I, I assume you put in everything that you could in the book about what exactly the NSA program was and how it changed in response to legal objections. Uh, Eric uh, describes how Cheney originally proposed a program that would have uh, included purely domestic spying, a total sea change in the way the NSA operates. And it was Bush, he, he reports, who made the final decision to insist that there was at least one international uh, call or email or participant uh, to justify the spying. Uh, was it limited to that, or did it, in any circumstances, uh, include purely domestic interception? And how was it changed in response to the legal objections raised by Goldsmith and Comey and others? You quote an administration official as saying, uh, before they were doing 10 things, now they're merely doing eight. Is there, if you're able to, if you can go into a little more detail about what precisely changed uh, and how and, and, and what the program now includes. Um, he, Eric was modest in saying it's a reporter's book. It's not, I mean, that's a very proud uh, thing to be. In fact, uh, for what it's worth, I found this one of the most inspiring reminders of the central function of the traditional press, now often derided as the mainstream media in American democracy. And if you, don't you believe for a moment the lazy whining of uh, bloggers who just assume that, well, we don't need these institutions because uh, uh, they're just atavistic remnants from a distant era. He, this is showing the checking function of the press, as Vincent Blasi called it, a, a, just a huge benefit for democracy. And just to see a real reporter uh, at the top of his game exposing uh, facts in the public interest is uh, great. It, it, it's, an, it's an inspiring thing to read. But uh, one wonders about what ideological or theoretical justification tied together the various programs he describes. He has chapters not only on surveillance and on uh, terrorist financing. The last chapter is about the US attorneys scandal. Uh, what linked the US attorneys to the surveillance scandal? Uh, you don't make grand theoretical claims, and maybe there aren't any. But some have made them. Uh, people like Goldsmith, again, have claimed in his book that it was an allegiance to the unitary executive theory. Uh, which began as a claim that the president had to have complete control over administrative agencies in the 1990s, but morphed under this President Bush into a claim that the president could do whatever he thought was necessary in the war on terror, including bending, or as critics would say, ignoring laws with which he disagreed, uh, that united his uh, claim that he could fire U.S. attorneys for political disagreement as well as his surveillance program. Is that too 
fancy. I mean, did Alberto Gonzalez and Monica Goodling and all these Bush loyalists, were they just loyal Bushies who were doing what they did because they thought the president uh, demanded it? Or would they, did they really have a David Addington-like allegiance to some broader vision uh, of executive power? You were on the ground, and I'd, I'd just be curious about how important you thought ideology was in, in uh, all of this. Um, one more word on, on Goldsmith. I did like his book, as you can tell, the, the Terror Presidency. But he ends by saying, it's an irony that Bush, who is not a lawyer, ended up taking far more legalistic positions in the war on terror than his greatest predecessors, such as Lincoln and Roosevelt, who understood that politics is primarily about persuasion. Lincoln and Roosevelt, during their wars, sometimes made unilateral assertions, but always went to Congress to get approval for their actions when it was possible to do so. And Bush, says Goldsmith, so concerned about creating immunity for CIA officials for torture, so, 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 so scared of being hauled before international human rights tribunals, bent the law by taking these unpersuasively broad uh, claims about the scope of executive authority uh, and under, underestimating the effect of politics. Do, do you uh, buy that, or from your vantage, was it just, again, individual people on the ground uh, acting in what they thought the interest of the president demands, but without any uh, theoretical superstructure or without a broad concern about legal liability that uh, tied everything together? And the last question, I'm very much looking forward to your thoughts and Mark's, too, because he has such good uh, perspective about this. Would, a, would the, will the next administration be much better on these issues, uh, whether Democratic or Republican. Eric says repeatedly, and I very much agree in his book, that it was bewildering that Bush took these actions unilaterally and didn't go to Congress. He notes that if Bush had gone to Congress right after 9-11 or years later, he could have gotten firm legal footing for everything that he wanted and more, and it was just ideological arrogance that led him not to do that and to leave the programs more vulnerable than they would otherwise have been. But Let's, just, let's imagine, this is uh, purely for the sake of uh, argument, so we have a Democratic president. Uh, is he or she actually going to go to Congress to get the authority that Bush did not? So take one example, uh, the Guantanamo detainees. All the candidates have said they're going to close Guantanamo. What are you going to do with uh, these people? Well, many have said you really need a national security court endorsed by Congress to create new combatant status review tribunals and to decide who's really dangerous, who should be released, and who should be court-martialed, and who should be uh, tried criminally. But it's kind of hard to imagine, actually, President Obama going to Congress and endorsing this moderate compromise. Uh, it would be uh, attacked by the left. It would be seen as a sellout. Why would he want to lose political capital? Better to close Guantanamo, and uh, many people think he'll just uh, hedge for a while, and uh, the, the, the problem won't go away. Uh, more broadly, when we look at the last Democratic president, uh, Bill Clinton, no civil libertarian, certainly, far less of one than Obama, but ended up endorsing many of the strong executive authorities that ended up in the USA Patriot Act. After the Oklahoma City bombing, it was Clinton who endorsed uh, sneak and peek uh, warrants, who in the crime bill supported the suspension of habeas corpus. Why did he do this? Because these are really popular positions. Being tough on crime and tough on terrorism is incredibly popular with most of the country. One poll that Ashcroft likes to cite suggested that 50% of the country think, thought the Patriot Act struck the right balance between privacy and security. 20% thought it didn't go far enough. Only 20% thought it went too far. This 20% libertarian conservatives and civil libertarian liberals. This is the constituency for uh, 
you know, for, for, for a book uh, like this. These are the people who are really concerned about the war on terror, but definitely a minority. So just broadly, and you've been around Washington, you see how all this played out. Are you really optimistic that even assuming that the next president won't be as aggressive and clumsy, unnecessarily inflammatory and saying that he can do whatever he wants, will he or she really uh, go to Congress and get the authority he wants, or is that likely to be more political trouble than it's worth? So uh, forgive that list of questions, but uh, lots to talk about. A wonderful book. Look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Is this a take-home assignment, Professor? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no one is graded. It was Mark's idea to lay them all out. I will, uh, I will try and tackle them. I may jump around here just as, as we uh, touch on different themes here. Um, you know, starting with the, the NSA and, and what did or didn't sway the editors, um, you know, which is obviously a question that everyone wants to know. Um, uh, mo most of the arguments from the White House uh, did not focus at all on the legality of the program. It was just sort of declared, um, you know, by fiat that, that that this was a legal program. That there was never any dissent when you tried to question them on that point. Even when we knew and suspected otherwise, it was it, it was dismissed with a with a glancing, you know, that never happened. Um, uh, e even at the end of the process, even even just before prior to publication, when we had firm evidence that there was real internal dissent. Um, they denied that, but that was really a, a small uh, part of the overall discussion. The, 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 the focus from the White House and the administration, um, you know, was was on uh, the harm to national security that would be done uh, by exposing this program. Um, and and uh, you know, you got to sort of put yourself in, in the room, uh, and it's similar to the briefings that we now know that members of Congress had from from the White House. You know, there there are a lot of bells and whistles involved here um, uh, and uh, a lot of very urgent pleas uh, when, when the administration is talking about intercepting calls from, you know, from Riyadh to San Diego uh, and is saying that they absolutely cannot do it any other way uh, and that this program is vital to doing that. Um, you know, and and uh, th those are difficult arguments to, to, um, uh, to just sort of cast aside. Uh, and the, the, the overall argument was that the terrorists, as much as we advertise um, that we are using everything in our arsenal to, to catch al-Qaeda and to listen to um, you know, bin Laden and Zawahiri and all the rest, uh, that there are still terrorists that don't know that. That, that was basically the argument. That there, you know, I must have heard that over and over again, that as many times as we tell them, there are still dumb terrorists out there who don't know we're listening to them. And I think it's more just sort of an overall sense, and we heard this from Mike McConnell, the director of national intelligence, just recently, um, that th this having this discussion means that Americans will die. Um, it, it's nothing more specific than that. It's just it's that abstract and that kind of esoteric. The fact that we have been talking about this and debating this for two and a half years means that Americans will die. That's what he said in the interview, and the interviewer was sort of struck by this. This was in Texas and. Um, at an, at an immigration conference, which had nothing to do with national security, the interviewer said, you're saying that because Congress is debating the NSA spy powers and, and the public is debating it, that Americans will die? He's saying, yes, because we're having this discussion, Americans will die. You know, you can't, you can't really argue with that. I mean, you can't argue with that, but, 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 it, but it's just a totally different way of looking at, at the way, you know, certainly from a journalistic perspective, at the way our society works. I mean, this is sort of the spy mentality that certain things are just best not discussed in public. And that was, that was how they came down in this program. Um, it certainly didn't convince me. 
you know, I, I came down on the side that, that um, we had made it very, very clear to the enemy from 9-11 from on that we were listening to every phone call we could and that the only real revelation here was that we were not going through the FISA court and doing it, which didn't really matter to bin Laden or, or al-Qaeda. That mattered to, you know, uh, law professors at GW or to, you know, the average citizen. I, I don't think al-Qaeda cares whether you're going through the FISA court. Um, there were, as, as I point out in the book, that there were some technical details that they got into in these meetings, um, which, which I didn't disclose, which the paper hadn't disclosed, you know, which, which you could see, uh, okay, maybe that technical detail could in fact tell the enemy something that they didn't know. And we didn't publish that. Um, and we kept that out. Um, so, um, I also get into um, sort of this interesting follow-up in the book where uh, the uh, one of the technical details soon became public a few days afterwards, the idea that um, uh, that calls from uh, overseas calls that were strictly overseas from, say, Riyadh to Kuala Lumpur happened to pass through the United States. Um, this was an argument that the administration said was not well known to, um, to al-Qaeda or to anyone else. Now, they're actually, if, you, if you're a techie, this actually was fairly well known. I mean, that, that, that's not, that itself is not altogether secret. But we kept that out of the original story. Um, you know, just sort of, okay, get, toss them toss a bone and, and, and we'll keep that out. Um, then after our story came out, the um, folks, on, uh, folks in Congress began talking about those very details. Uh, that idea that international traffic happened to pass through the United States, that we need to take advantage of that. So that, that sort of gave us an opening to go back and talk about the, the broader data mining that the NSA was doing by virtue of, of um, grabbing on to these international calls. So, you know, what, what was and wasn't part of national security secrets kind of evolved over time, the, the longer people kept talking about this stuff. Um, you know, as far as Goldsmith's arguments that, that this did do harm to national security, I, I saw that in your magazine article. I, I wish I knew what he was talking about there. I, I, I don't, um, I, I think it just comes back to just this, this belief among some folks within the administration, even those who, who dissented on key things, that discussion of certain issues is harmful. Um, and, and, and that's a strongly held belief among the folks sort of inside that bunker. So. Uh, let's see. Um, the Pentagon Papers. Um, Whether judges and editors are good at balancing this, I'm, you know, you, you think it sounds like you think that they were too uh, quickly swayed by these arguments. And right, right. That, that the editors were. Um, you know, the, I think it's important to remember that when when the New York Times editors first began considering whether to run this story, it was it was the fall of two thousand four. Um, uh, and it was a different climate, um, and uh, the we were still only a couple of years, um, two two and a half years out, out of uh, out of 9/11. Uh, I guess going on, well, I guess at that point when we first first actually began talking about this it was probably two and a half years after 9/11, and, and you know that cloud of 9/11 was still pretty heavy, and. Um, I don't think there are a lot of editors uh, at any major newspapers who would have run the story at that point. I think there was still this real fear and concern that um, 
that no media would do anything that could possibly be seen as harming national security. By the time we ran the story in, in late 2005, you know, a lot had changed in terms of the administration's credibility, particularly on Iraq. Um, and I think that that certainly played into the ultimate decision. Um, the, the, the fact that we could no longer sort of take at face value what we were hearing, um, and, and the fact that the media just in that year alone had gotten beaten up so badly for, for being too, um, uh, too gullible, if you will, and not uh, aggressive enough in questioning the um, intelligence in, in the pre-war buildup. So I think that that, that had a strong um, that had a strong influence in the course of that year in terms of why they decided uh, to publish when they did, whereas they hadn't the year before. Eric, there's another point you make in the book as well. I, let me just quote a line. Uh, Many of the key decisions and strategies were hidden, not only from Congress, the courts, the American public, and international allies, but even from many of the senior counterterrorism officials in Bush's administration who were charged with carrying out the plan. Uh, and to that, I think one might add the senior military uh, lawyers right, right. Who, who were never consulted, or who were excluded from high-level discussions of U.S. interrogation policies and so forth. Um, to what extent did this uh, weigh with you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was, that was a, a big factor, um, uh, the, the, the secrecy. Um, that, that, that obviously was driven by Cheney's office, uh, obviously bred suspicion um, with, with interrogation policies, uh, with the NSA program, with a whole host of programs, renditions, um, and, and ultimately I think was, was counterproductive in a lot of ways because it turned a lot of people within the administration against these programs. Um, people who needed to know about uh, about what was going on were intentionally excluded, and, and I talk at some length about the NSA program and, and uh, um, the firestorm that erupted at the FBI from, from people who um, were excluded from the program and, and were wondering what the hell is the NSA doing here, um, and separately at the Deputy Attorney General's office, um, the, the refusal by Ashcroft's top deputy to sign on to this mystery breed of warrants. I mean, these are people with the top security clearance in government who, because this was so tightly held, were, were, were excluded from the program. Um, and we saw that it, it, certainly in Congress, too. Uh, it, the, the, the NSA program was limited to, um, at first, to the Gang of Four and then to the Gang of Eight, even though many would argue that by law the full intelligence committees um, should, have been, should have been briefed. Um, and, and ultimately, I think the editors believed in, in running the story that that lack of any real oversight um, and the lack of aggressive questioning um, was, did influence the decision to publish. I mean, after, after my book came out, uh, what, two weeks ago, J Jane Harmon put out a, a fairly remarkable statement, I thought, in response to one passage in the book where, where I talk about questioning her um, on, on her support for the program. And she said um, she took some flack for that from the left. Um, and, and she said in her statement in response to this, this scene in the book, um, that she, yes, she was in on these briefings, yes, she supported the program, but she didn't even know that they were not going through the FISA court um, and uh, that uh, for whatever reason members of Congress didn't even ask those legal questions, you know, which says a lot about the nature of these briefings, that, that critical questions were not even being asked. And, and then to, to fast forward to our, our, our second um, big story, I guess, on, on the SWIFT banking program, um, again, we had that similar dynamic where 
members of Congress were, were clearly excluded from the program who, who by law should have been briefed. Um, and, and that caused uh, more consternation in Congress after a story came out. And clearly that, that drove the editors to, to decide to publish because, um, you know, because you had members of the banking committees who knew nothing about this. Uh, and, and after a story came out, um, Senator Leahy, uh, I remember, said, uh, and Senator Spector, I think, did also, that you know, if they want to find out what the government is doing and get classified briefings, they should just subscribe to the New York Times <laughs> because that's the only way you're going to find out this stuff. So there was a feeling that like congressional oversight had really become an oxymoron. Well, I guess there are two ways of reading that. One is you needed to publish because you were no longer persuaded that the decisions that were taken uh, had been carefully considered itself a story. Right. Uh, the other, I guess, goes back to uh, Jeff's citation from uh, Vince Blasey, uh, the, the idea that the press has an independent checking function. I wonder if uh, this almost sets up a kind of balancing test where that checking function becomes increasingly important to the extent that uh, intergovernmental checks and balances fail to function. Yeah, no, I, I think there's... Um, yeah, there, there's a lot to be said for that, 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 that the power was so centralized um, among a few people uh, that, that there, there were no operational controls. Uh, you know, very few people in the NSA program um, could tell you what the NSA was, was even doing. The NSA had essentially assumed the role uh, of, of, um, that, that it used to be played by four different agencies. It used to be played by FBI investigators, uh, prosecutors of the Justice Department, then judges at the FISA court, and then back to the Justice Department. That had all become condensed at the, and consolidated at the, at the NSA uh, without the knowledge of, of many people. So uh, let's see, down my list here. Um, do, do we, uh, let me jump to, do we underestimate um, the successes? Um, yeah, I, th I think we, there, there are probably times that we, we in the media become, become so cynical. Uh, let me back up. I, I, think, I think at the beginning, we probably overestimated the successes. Uh, and I talk at some length about the, the, the changing attitudes of the media. Um, and, and I relate one scene, I won't go into detail, but of running out of a, a, a congressional briefing that John Ashcroft, uh, where John Ashcroft dropped a bombshell and talked about a, a uh, mosque in Brooklyn that supposedly was linked to bin Laden and financing $20 million um, through this uh, Yemeni cleric. Uh, and, and, you know, said, hold a spot on page one, you know, and sure enough, the story ran on the front page the next day. And, and very quickly, the case, or at least key elements of it, collapsed. And, and by the end, there was nothing tying this cleric to this Brooklyn mosque. There was nothing suggesting that $20 million had been raised for, for personally for bin Laden. You know, but those details are all grab those headlines initially, but it's all forgotten by the end. At the at the outset, I think we we probably gave them way too much credit for the successes in disrupting supposed plots uh, without asking the necessary questions. You all probably remember um, John Ashcroft's uh, dirty bomber, the the, ra the radioactive bomber from uh, Moscow that was announced um, live from Moscow with this orange glow over Ashcroft's head. Um, you know, th there was very little questioning of, you know, how real is this for quite some time. And, and we saw that a lot in, in 2002 and 2003. You know, now we've sort of gotten maybe too cynical. Um, and uh, there have now been so many times where these cases are announced to, to, to so much fanfare and soon turn out to be you know, much less than advertised. Uh, there was a case maybe a year ago 
um, where uh, this gang of uh, uh, Haitians in Miami, uh, these sort of wannabe, hapless wannabes, supposedly were planning a plot to bring down the Chicago Sears Tower. Um, and, uh, you know, that was one where on its face it kind of looked ridiculous. You know, that was, that was one where they announced it and you're like, this, this is the best you got? You know, and of course they brought that to trial. Didn't, as of now, I don't think they've gotten a single conviction. They've gotten uh, acquittals and a bunch of mistrials, not a single person convicted. Um, so, yeah, we, we do get a little bit jaded, I, I think. And um, that may be from the administration kind of um, overshooting uh, and, and losing its own credibility. I mean, the administration, the White House put out a list, um, I'm guessing maybe a year ago, of 10 plots that were that were broken up, um, it said, since 9-11, 10, 10 real plots in the making, uh, one at LAX, um, uh, another one involving the, uh, uh, the liquid gels on the overseas flights. Um, you know, some of those appear real, and they get all sorts of credit for those. Others are heavily disputed, and it's really tough to tell what may or may not be, be going on there. Um, so, you know, I think it's better that we're questioning this stuff rather than just sort of accepting them um, you know, at face value. Well, let me ask you both uh, on that point. Uh, in the intelligence sphere, obviously it's particularly difficult for not only the press, but for members of Congress and other actors uh, to really understand enough about what they're not being told right. uh, to make a uh, responsible assessment and to do that balancing. Uh, there, I think there'd be an argument that the press is, uh, is not well positioned uh, in those cases because of the, the, the what it does not know. Um, suppose, uh, let, me, let me ask you both this. Um, uh, you're a responsible journalist and you suspect, you strongly suspect, you have reason to believe uh, that the classification uh, of, uh, of, of a secret has been made not because of legitimate national security imperatives, but to conceal information that might be embarrassing to the government or politically inconvenient. Uh, you, you, f you feel that strongly, and you have reason to think so. Um, but you can't be sure. Mm -hmm. uh, it is possible that, uh, that Goldsmith is right in a given instance, or that McConnell is, 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 is right, or even that Ashcroft is right. Uh, and that by uh, giving uh, that information to the public, you are giving it to the terrorists. How do you, um, I mean, it may not be easy to answer a question like this in the abstract, but how do you, how do you cope with that? And Jeff, how, how do you think a responsible journalist should uh, approach that problem and, and, and do the weighing that inevitably is part of what journalists have to do? Yeah, the, look, these are these are judgment calls, um, and you know, as as evidenced in the case of the NSA story, the, the, they um, are often made after after agonizing and and, and months and months of, of deliberation. Um, uh, there were a couple of cases which I, which I um, talk about just briefly in the book, where um, you know we in our reporting came across other counterterrorism counterterrorism operations um, that struck. Uh, uh, my partner Jim and me, and also our editor, as being beyond that that uh, that line of um, uh, something we would not publish, at least on their face. Uh, you know that that we didn't think there was an obvious public interest, and there was a pretty 
clear reason why national security might be compromised if this would was to be published. And we just kind of dropped both those cases right there. Um, you know, maybe if we'd done more reporting, we might have found out, we might have thought differently, we might have found out something different. But, um, you know, a lot of this is self-regulated and, and self-checked. Now, you know, I know there's certainly folks on, on the other side who say, you know, what, what, what gives the New York Times or the media, um, you know, the right to decide this stuff? That's why we have um, people in government who, who classify these documents. You know, who elected you president is, is something you hear from, you know, I've heard from, um, from any number of people. Um, but if you, I think we're probably in dangerous territory if we totally cede that, that authority under the First Amendment to, to the government. I mean, you know, there's been a surge in classification the last, the last five, six years. I think it's triple or maybe now quadruple what it was in 2001. And, you know, we, we've now seen the last couple of years um, documents reclassified that had once been unclassified. Um, you know, and, and you, you could, you could uh, write a whole farce out of, out of these things, you know, uh, crop, uh, crop levels in, uh, in, in world, during World War II in Russia um, or, or troop levels in, in the Korean War. I mean, th those are things that are now considered classified. So if, if, the, if the media is, in effect, banned, if, if we want to adopt an official secrets act like in Britain, and if the media is banned from touching anything that could be considered classified, then there's all sorts of stuff we wouldn't know. I mean, look, look at all the major stories the last couple of years, from Abu Ghraib to CIA black site prisons to uh, Guantanamo to waterboarding and, and the NSA surveillance and the SWIFT program. All of those are, are stories that um, fell squarely in the area of sensitive um, national security programs and would never have run were it up to the administration. Of course, journalists make decisions about uh, confidentiality and secrecy every day, and that's the nature of the source-journalist relationship. And if you want to have a continuing relationship with someone, then they have to be able to trust you enough not to publish the things you say you're not going to trust and to keep your side of the bargain. And it sounds like one of the things that has broken down during this post-9-11 era is that trust has completely been destroyed. And when you're lied to repeatedly and you have the sense that things are being over classified and so forth, it's very hard for uh, journalists to, to engage in that kind of weighing in good faith because they're afraid of being made to play for dupes. So one thing the next administration might do uh, that would help things all around is uh, not take such a combative, unilateralist, antagonistic relationship to the press, which might uh, lead people to be more willing to make these sort of decisions. I wonder though, Mark, you said it's secret information that might uh, suggest that a program is working or not working and you don't really have the basis for deciding whether or not to trust what the administration says. My sense for most of these programs is uh, the trick is the public's attention span. So a claim that a data mining program, for example, might identify someone who bought fertilizer in Florida and then took flying lessons uh, who is going to have the same uh, travel patterns as Muhammad Atta and therefore should be stopped at the airport is implausible because uh, the next attack is not likely to look like the last one. And given the dangers of false positives and false negatives, if you've got 300 million uh, travelers, even 1% inaccuracy, 3 million people wrong. And so, anyway, I'm beginning to make the claim and already your eyes begin to glaze because describing the analytical problems with these programs often takes uh, a little longer than the 15 seconds that anyone has to make a point uh, quickly. 
So in this sense, it's, this is also as much a problem for uh, editors who are ultimately r responsible for audiences. They're a democratic institution, as, as Eric has described, as susceptible to public pressures as the rest. And reporters, when I'm pitching a story, you, you can't come up with a narrative that's going to completely uh, be resisted by the, the audience you're writing for, or they won't pay attention to it. So in this sense, I do think, I mean, Eric uh, is crowned, appropriately crowned with glory for his uh, efforts here, but the, the press has to recognize the degree to which it is subject to the same political pressures that the administration is, and rather than just instinctively blaming classification for the problems, recognize that maybe we have to find ways to get people interested in these highly technical subjects to begin with. I agree. Let me uh, turn to another question. If I sure, can. absolutely. Um, Enough questions for me. He's got no, no. Well, we got we've got hours worth of questions, and only uh, a short while before we take your questions uh, in the audience. Uh, but I, I wanted to go to, uh, uh, I guess, to the title of the book and to what that means for the rule of law and for lawyers uh, in our society. Um, uh, Bush's law has a lot to say about the Bush lawyers who decided what the law would mean uh, and the role that they have played in enabling the administration to override some of the kinds of checks and balances that normally come into play. Um, one of your colleagues, uh, the uh, legal commentator for Slate, Dahlia Luthwick, said this, someday when we look back at the Bush administration's war on terror, we'll be unable to point to the bad guys because they will turn out to be a bunch of attorneys in starched white button downs using plausible-sounding legal analysis to beat precedent and statute and treatise from plowshares into swords. And not one of them will be held to account. So I guess I wanted to ask uh, both of you, uh, are these the bad guys? Are these among the bad guys? Uh, and if so, uh, should they be held to account? And if so, how? Interesting question. I don't know that I go so far as to say that they're the they're the bad guys. They're wearing the black hats, but but certainly there was an effort um, in the administration to give um, legal blessing to it to at least at least create a, a, a fig leaf of a legal imprimatur um, around most of these programs. Um, and as we've seen just in the last few weeks now, that was often done through the Justice Department. Um, more often than not, through through John Yu, um, who was a deputy legal uh, deputy in the Office of Legal Counsel, um, relatively low ranking in the administration at the time of 9/11, but shared uh, with uh, with David Addington in, in Cheney's office this this uh, expansive view of the uh, president's wartime powers, and and um, there was a, a synergy between lawyers. Um, at the Justice Department, from the Vice President's office, and the Pentagon mainly. It was sort of a uh, triumvirate there, um, and, and with some key key tangents elsewhere. But um, and that was the the legal apparatus that that sustained a lot of these policies. Now, now which came first? Um, you know, I, I think there are still a lot of questions that we don't don't know about some of these policies. You know, we're still finding out more things, um, you know, every day about the the, the policies on. Torture and interrogation, um, but uh, clearly there there was an evolving legal policy that that created um, this this uh, almost unchecked authority for the president in, in times of war that said that that regardless of what international treaty or or uh, U.S. criminal codes or uh, congressional mandates said, 
that the president, in defending the country, um, had the right to do uh, virtually anything. Um, and you know, there uh, may be a strong contingent of the country that certainly in the in the immediate aftermath of 9/11 said, you know, you go. Uh, I, I agree with that. Um, that's become a, a much less popular idea today, uh, and um, there's now obviously a, a, a call in many parts, I think, in the country for a return to kind of the normal checks and balances that, that, we've, um, that we've kind of taken for granted. I don't agree with Dahlia. I think it's a provocative statement, but it puts too much uh, pressure on the lawyers and exonerates the politicians who are responsible for these decisions. So I know John Yu, I am a friend of John Yu's. I went to law school with John Yu. And I think John Yu's uh, memos, as his friend, uh, his former friend, I guess now Goldsmith, they're not speaking anymore, said, were indeed tendentious, uh, sloppy, uh, uh, ill-conceived, overbroad, really bad legal work, uh, attributable partly to the pressures that he was under, uh, and most of all to the tremendous uh, political pressures from the highest level of the administration, we learned this week from uh, Cheney himself, as well as Addington, for these forms of legal justifications. So as lawyers can make a professional judgment about this sort of thing, but the people responsible for these policies were Cheney, Addington, and ultimately George Bush, for goodness sake. This is, there's a sort of convenient exoneration of, oh, it's all the lawyer's fault, or the president wasn't a lawyer, how could he have understood? Or, uh, um, these were political decisions made at the highest level by a very small group of people who were responsible for their consequences. And the idea that they wouldn't have taken place uh, if the, there had been a, a, a more scrupulous lawyer in there. I mean, if it had been Goldsmith rather than you, it would have put some pressure on him. But, it, but at, at the beginning, I think, tell me, Eric, if you disagree, Attican would have found a way to put that stuff through in any event. So um, law is a very malleable thing. You can argue almost anything round or uh, square. And lawyers ultimately have a limited role in making uh, really serious policy decisions. So I think the, the, the villains are not uh, unknown. Um, I don't, I think villain is maybe not so strong, given, given the, the consequences of some of these things. Will Addington be taken into account? Will Cheney be taken into account? And what is the appropriate, maybe this is the final thought, the, uh, if they should be held accountable, as they should be, uh, it should be politically rather than legally. It was wrong for them to fear war crimes prosecutions. And to the degree that Addington was trying to cover himself against some possible international human rights prosecution, he demanded the kind of memos that you provided. It doesn't make sense to haul him before the Hague. Uh, what you need is uh, 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 hearings, uh, censure. In order to do that, you need uh, a press that's performing the role that uh, Eric did. And that means now it's the time for Congress not to impeach, because impeachment is not a mechanism for political disagreement, but for really strong oversight hearings. And why they have not held these people to account, even though the Congress is in democratic hands, is another manifestation of this uh, supine political dynamic that we've been discuss discussing in other areas. Very true. Um, we're going to open it up in a moment to your questions. Um, I just uh, would like to take us one last time back to the provocative question that uh, uh, that Jeff laid out, uh, would, a, uh, would a, a new administration of whatever uh, partisan coloration uh, really do things differently? Um, of course, we can only judge what they would do now, not what they would have done then, um, knowing what they now know. Um, but um, uh, 
the question about the role of lawyers uh, and the checks and balances that didn't happen uh, seems to me to be central to this issue. Um, any administration is likely to uh, take an expansive view of its powers. Uh, it's in the nature of the beast. Uh, it's in the nature of presidents that they uh, attempt to, uh, to maximize their leverage vis-a-vis -vis the other branches of government. Uh, I think what we saw here, and I may be disagreeing slightly with, with Jeff, uh, was, uh, was something new uh, where, where lawyers, particularly at OLC, had traditionally served as a kind of firewall. And again, OLC, uh, when Walter Dellinger was there, he also took a very expansive view in a number of instances. But they, I think they took seriously their job uh, of, of putting the brakes on, uh, that if they don't do it, nobody will. And nobody did. Uh, and so I, I guess what I would hope from a new administration uh, is that it would restore that sense. I guess that, that's the sense in which I think of the rule of law as ultimately governing. It's not that the, the lawyers are uh, the only safeguard that we have, uh, far from it. But uh, if Congress doesn't do its job, and the lawyers don't do their jobs, and the local magistrates don't do their jobs, um, the, uh, the system that the framers had in mind doesn't have much of a chance. Uh, we still have uh, the fourth estate. Uh, and uh, once again, it seems to me that it puts even more pressure uh, on independent um, investigators and journalists uh, and reporters uh, to try to make up for the, uh, for the vacuum, to fill the vacuum that's created. Uh, but I would hope that whichever uh, person wins the presidency uh, is uh, somebody who's committed to the idea that we must uh, re-domesticate the way our government does business in this area, that for the sake of the legitimacy of the government itself, uh, we can't go on like this. But let me get a final thought from each of you on that, and then we're going to open it up. Sure. Um, I wouldn't be quite so sure that's going to happen. I, I mean, it's, it's easy for the candidates uh, to say on the campaign trail that they're going to restore checks and balances as each of the three has, has done to sort of varying degrees. Um, but you know, when, when you're sitting there in the White House and, and you know, George Bush has given you all these cool tools in the tool chest, I'm not sure that you're going to be so quick to give those back. I mean, you, you, know, you're, you don't want, whether, whether it's, whether it's uh, Obama or Hillary or McCain, you don't want the next terrorist attack on your watch. I mean, that's, that's got to be number one on the priority list. And you're going to use whatever uh, whatever powers you have at your disposal. Um, and, you know, unless Congress yanks it away from you, I'm not sure you're going to give it up willingly. That, that would be my, my guess. That sounds exactly right to me. And uh, I'd imagine more regularization of lawyers at OLC. Uh, this administration did take the unitary executive stuff to a new level. But one thing we've learned, Mark, you and I were talking about this too, presidential leadership is crucial. Congress, even if it's a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, is not going to demand that they regularize the FISA program because it, they have to take political heat for it. It's unpopular to make these choices. You would actually need a president so committed to bilateral authority, so convinced that he needed congressional authorization or she needed uh, authorization for their actions, that they went to Congress and said, I'm putting my uh, self on the line. Here's my plan for Guantanamo. Here's what I want to do with FISA, and then building up a national constituency for a kind of moderate, sensible compromise that Congress would follow. Uh, we've not seen that for a very long time, and really, it is the greatest of all presidents who are capable of this. It's not a usual thing. Bill Clinton, 
did not put his political capital on the line. He was happier to eviscerate habeas corpus than really to uh, uh, defend it. Um, but we're living unusual times. Uh, I can imagine some of the candidates caring enough to try to do that. Uh, but I agree with Eric. I'm not uh, betting that uh, uh, presidential heroics are a matter of course. Right. Well, in the last time that this did happen, uh, it did generate FISA. Uh, we were in the post-Watergate period, uh, much uh, same kind of dynamic about the need to get back to uh, checks and balances to stem abuses. Uh, and we did have uh, actually two presidents, President Ford and President Carter, uh, who uh, uh, in one case with some reluctance and the other quite willingly uh, said it's time to put uh, uh, foreign intelligence surveillance under a, a regularized regime. So uh, perhaps that's, that's the kind of condition that might generate a, uh, a similar result today. Let's go to your questions. Um, when I recognize you, please wait until the microphone is brought to you, then state your name and affiliation and ask your question. Um, first question. Hi, I'm Kate Martin from the Center for National Security Studies, and I want to thank Eric for his amazing work. Um, but and just mention, uh, in connection with what you just said, Mark and Jeff, is that Attorney General Reno, when presented with the Justice Department's position that she had the authority to authorize secret searches of Americans' houses in the Aldrich Ames case. She did so, and then she said, I'm not signing any more warrants as Attorney General, and she went to Congress, and that did happen in the Clinton administration, and it was due, I think, to the Attorney General. But I wanted to ask Eric a couple of questions. One is, the pr what kind of consideration does the press give to the issue of the significance of potential terrorist plots? Because, you know, the, it's treated as, any potential terrorist plot is kind of the equivalent of 9-11 or an existential threat to the United States. And of course, in most of the world, numbers of people are killed periodically by terrorists, and it's not treated that way. And I think it goes to the whole calculus of what's done. And secondly, I wanted to ask your impression about the data mining efforts. Because my impression is that they have been adopted and implemented because um, people inside who are well-meaning don't know what else to do. And that it's almost, they don't want to be caught red-handed the way they were last time. And the easiest thing to do is to say, gather as much information as possible, analyze it as well as possible, and hope we come up with the next terrorist. And that's not very reassuring to me. I think that's I think that's certainly true, and Jeff alluded to that earlier. That that most folks who you talk to within the counterterrorism world believe that the the real value is is in human intelligence, and we're obviously you know sorely lacking in there. Uh, you know, George Tan acknowledged I think it was about five years ago that we were about five years away from having uh, a real counterintelligence um, uh, hu human intelligence forces that could penetrate Al Qaeda. I think we're still nowhere near that. Um, so the easy fallback is um, is these uh, enormous data mining uh, operations that have um, you know 
that, that make great PowerPoint presentations. You know, you can see if you're the policymaker up there and, and, and you see all the bells and whistles, you can see how you'd be enamored of this stuff, but the results are, are pretty negligible and, and they've never been, uh, maybe they work, maybe they don't. I'm not sure anyone really knows. Um, we've had a couple of, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, very questionable claims. There was the Pentagon's Able Danger Program a couple of years ago, which claimed to have spotted Muhammad Atta before 9-11. Um, that was basically debunked, um, but this is basically where we're putting all our all our eggs. Um, and uh, the idea is that if you pump enough information into the system, uh, if you have enough uh, enough bits of uh, enough bits of data, that it will spit out the answer. It will spit out the next Muhammad Atta, and the government is hoping that that's true. Uh, I'm not sure it is. So. Way in the back. I'm Daniel Abramson, just a student, and I want to thank you both for your comments. Uh, Professor Rosen, I wanted to ask you about the privatization. Uh, some of the companies that are now working on NSA software uh, since 1999-2000, there's been a trend where instead of doing the software in-house, they tend to farm it out to companies like SAIC, uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, Northrop Grumman. Uh, so there were three program updates. They had the Trailblazer program which was the big multi-billion dollar failure by SAIC, where a former NSA executive then went back to SAIC to design the program. Um, in the case of Computer Sciences Corporation with the Groundbreaker program, they were actually working on human intelligence. And with the Turbulence program, this appears to be Google working again hand in hand with the NSA. I'd like to ask you about the potential liability for these companies, uh, which doesn't seem to be getting a lot of discussion vis-a-vis -vis the telecom immunity and also the oversight possibilities, whether these companies could be stepping outside of congressional oversight in the case of SAIC. And if I may be so bold, Mr. Licklau, I'd like to ask you about the satellite surveillance. Um, in the case of these uh, programs, it appears that the National Reconnaissance Office, with a budget of about $8 billion, and the National uh, Geospatial Intelligence Agency may also be involved. So there was an article a couple days ago talking about using uh, surveillance capabilities of satellites. I would like to ask you about that. Thanks. A wonderful question, uh, and yes, indeed, uh, these companies have dollar signs uh, in their eyes, and there's a tremendous desire to corner the government market for surveillance uh, as part of what some have called the military technological complex. Now, you ask about regulation. What makes it so tricky is that in America, we're quite willing to impose regulation on government data gathering, but much more reluctant to engage in oversight of private sector data gathering, and that relates to our history very uh, keen on Fourth Amendment limitations on the state dating back to uh, the colonial era, but the same conservative libertarians who are very afraid of uh, the White House spying on them balk when they're presented with uh, bills along the lines of the European uh, privacy laws that prevent the private sector from collecting information from one purpose and sharing it for another. Europe is the opposite. They're very concerned about dignity and therefore they have these broad private sector directives, but much more status, less libertarian when it comes to state information gathering. And France and Germany have allowed uh, data collection programs by the state that make the Patriot Act look mild. So this is a real problem in a world where both the state and the private sector gathering are intertwined, and any effective system of regulation would have to uh, regulate both parts. As it is, because uh, Europe and America only want to regulate half, you can have a lot of bootstrapping where the government, as you suggest, can basically farm out this data gathering to the private sector. 
uh, and then uh, get it back uh, free of legal regulations. So this seems to be, it's not like the regulatory problem is impossible. You could design a law that would take account of this and you could have uh, political bodies that would oversee it. But I'm afraid that the political constituency for such an effective regulation may not exist. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add, but I think you make an important point that over the last 10, 15 years, we, we've seen more and more of a private-public partnership in the area of satellites and, and reconnaissance, et cetera. Um, and and you know, the, the, the federal government has just sort of thrown up its hands in some areas in the realization that the, the private industry can do it better and, and, and cheaper. Yeah, I'm Ed Spanos from Executive Intelligence Review. Uh, I'd like to maybe take issue with something Jeff said about not the not advising criminal prosecutions. It seems to me that I mean, if you look at the Nuremberg precedent, where there was conspiracy law, rightly or wrongly, was applied in that situation, and you had a conspiracy to commit war crimes and so forth, that the type of I mean, some of the the material in Eric's book and others shows that this was not a good faith effort to go out and get legal advice. If they were going to do that, they would have talked to the JAGs, they would have listened to them, they would have gone through the Justice Department chain of command, they wouldn't have excluded the Deputy Attorney General and others on a lot of these things. I mean, I realize we're talking surveillance and torture, different things, but I think the same process was involved. It's like the corporate CEO who seeks out the lawyer who will give him the advice he wants to hear. And they went down the chain of command and justice to get John Yu, you know, bypassing his superiors to get that. And the same thing was true with, I think, the State Department and the military. So you could, I mean, a good criminal prosecutor could make out a very good case of a, cons of a conspiracy. They do it every day using these kinds of materials, a conspiracy to commit war crimes. And, I mean, it wouldn't, it seems to me the best way to restore the honor of our country, which has been, you know, I hope not irrevocably irrevo lost in this past period, would be, to hold people to account in that way. I, 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 do, uh, I do disagree. Goldsmith is quite eloquent on this. It's ironic that he had made his scholarly reputation opposing the criminalization of international politics and political differences. And he said that when not only uh, Cheney and John Yu, but CIA officials have to fear being hauled up for war crimes prosecutions uh, based on their conduct on the battlefield, then they really won't do what's necessary in the war on terror. And these are not, uh, as I said, legal questions are malleable. These are not completely beyond the realm of respectable debate. I, I don't like uh, such uh, inflexible notions of the law. And uh, Cheney's been pushing this stuff ever since the Iran-Contra uh, hearings in the 80s. He, you know, he believes this. And there are plenty of smart conservatives who believe it. And the idea that you could be tried for your legal views Far from being a, a salve that would, would heal the wounds of a polarized nation, it seems in addition to inflaming things, would set such a terrible precedent for also prosecuting the other side, the Democrats, when the shoe is on the other foot, uh, and encouraging uh, uh, countries to haul our people before international tribunals. And there, there's no uh, none of the political constraint that usually uh, operates on prosecutors. Those are unelected people that don't necessarily share our political context. Uh, it could lead to a lot of bad stuff. So I, I say uh, nail the buns with a lot, a lot of oversight hearings and stuff, but I, I, I do have some questions about criminal prosecution. And there are other alternatives. Uh, some societies use truth commissions, uh, and perhaps 
it's time for one year. Uh, last question. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Phyllis McClure. Do I remember correctly reading in the Times that the FBI has subpoenaed James Risen for his tapes? And are they after him for his sources? Uh, yes. They, they, What's the status of that situation? That's still pending. They, they've uh, issued a subpoena to him over his, his book, State of War, uh, although it was over chapters unrelated to the things we've been talking about. Um, it was not over the NSA story um, or, or other other stories that appeared in the Times. Uh, it was over a chapter that dealt with Iranian intelligence. Uh, that, it, that's, it's that's what? Still, it was over a chapter that dealt with Iranian intelligence. Um, well, I guess I have to read his book to uh, find I, I, out. I recommend it. Read mine first, but then, but then read his. Um, You're on my list, believe that, me. Thank you. But yeah, but he, but uh, that that's still it's still. Pending. But but doesn't it, affect and the, he's, he's fighting it. He is it doesn't affect it. your work, or does it involve the Times? Uh, no, not, not, not directly. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank both of our speakers, Eric and Jeff, for a wonderful discussion. Uh, before we close, let me thank our events team here at the center, my assistant, uh, Mike Rugnetta. Uh, Eric will be signing copies of the book immediately following the program. Glad Complete to. video and transcript of the program are available, will be available on our website at www.americanprogress.org. Thank you for being here, and please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you.